You might remember seeing that video from a couple years ago. That was our vacation Bible, one of our vacation Bible school uh, videos when we did the Rocky Mountain Railway. Uh, it's actually when we had to do the virtual uh, um, vacation Bible school because of all the COVID stuff that was happening that year. And so that was one of the videos uh, and one of the songs. And so some of you may remember it from that. Some of you may remember that as a hymn you grew up singing. Now, if you grew up singing that song as a hymn, it probably didn't sound exactly like that. All right, I'll just be honest with you. I grew up in Stokes County, and so that didn't sound anything like the song I was used to. One, because they had other instruments besides just a piano which is all we had growing up in church, and they also used the word power, all right? I grew up, there was only power. There wasn't power, there was just power, all right? And that's all we had in the Stokes County Twain. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 and starting in verse 5, and so I want you to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, uh, because we're going to see that that song, the reason that song is so great and has held the test of time is because it is absolutely 100% true. There is wonder-working power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5 this morning, and preparing ourselves to come to this table where we sit and we remember how great the power of the blood of Jesus Christ is. And so we're going to see the power not only of the flesh, but also of the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 5, we're actually going to read through the whole end of the chapter through verse 18. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says, For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But one has somewhere testified, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? He, you made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. Verse 10. For in bringing many sons to glory, it is entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation again. I will trust in him, and again, here I am with the children God gave me. Verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Let's pray together. Father God, this morning, I pray that we are overwhelmed. God, I pray that we are overwhelmed by the wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray this morning that there are some sitting here that may not know this power that we're talking about. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will use the words of my mouth and the words of your text. 
God, that you will speak boldly and clearly to them, God, that they may know the grace that awaits them through this blood. God, for us who do know that grace, I pray this morning, God, that we are just washed and we are overwhelmed. And God, that we are so amazed at it. God, I pray this morning that we don't leave here just feeling numb as we have before. God, I pray this morning, God, that we will be encountered with the gospel, God, that I pray this morning, God, that we will be uh, brought to the throne room, to the feet of our Savior this morning, God, so we can see how powerful His flesh and His blood were, God, and what it took for Him to give up everything to come and to be our Savior. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak. And God, I pray this morning in our silence and our stillness and our calmness, God, that we will just be overwhelmed. God, that we will be speechless this morning. And God, that we will rest in the assurance and the power that you have and the power of your blood and of your flesh. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Controversy is really nothing new to the royal family of England. In fact, there's been a kind of a controversy brewing for thousands, for about a thousand years as to who is the rightful ruler of the nation of England. And so this controversy um, as to the rightful ruler and who should be in charge of England in the first place really goes back about a thousand years to an event that happened in 1066. Now in 1066, uh, that year started off with a guy named Edward who was called Edward the Confessor, right? He was the king of England, right? But in January, Edward died. The problem was that Edward didn't have a son to pass the crown on to, right? So anytime that happens, there's always this controversy, who's going to be the king, who's next in line? Uh, and so Edward died, and there wasn't a, a clear successor as to the one who was going to take over. But by the end of that year, uh, a guy by the name of William the Conqueror, who was not even English, he claimed the crown. You see, he claimed that he'd visited England uh, years before that, and Edward had promised that he would give him the crown, right? That when he died, he would pass the crown on to him because he didn't have any kids. And so Edward said that the crown was rightfully his because it was promised to him. And when the folks from England didn't really like the idea that Edward wasn't English, was going to be their king, they didn't like this idea so much. So they opposed him. And so Edward did what some kings do. He got a big old army and invaded and took over and said, all right, you don't want me to be king, but now I am because I'm bigger and more powerful than you are, right? And so the current queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, she claims the authority to rule England because she is a direct descendant of William the Conqueror. She is the, if I got this right, she is the 25th great-granddaughter of William the Conqueror. So she can back her family line up 25 generations. I think I can back mine up like three, but she can back hers up 25 generations and arrive at William the Conqueror. So she says because the blood of William the Conqueror runs through her veins, she is the rightful heir of the throne and she is the rightful ruler of England, right? And so for many people that satisfies, that settles the controversy. But there's another group that says, no, no, that's not going to work because William was never the rightful king in the first place. You see, in 1066, there was another guy who claimed that he was the rightful ruler of England in the first place because when William the Edward, or Edward the Confessor 
was about to die, he made this deathbed promise to a guy named Harold Godwinson, right? And he said that Harold was going to be the next king, that he wanted to give Harold the, the throne, and he wanted Harold to be in charge. Now, this was pretty likely because Harold, uh, unlike William, was British, so he had that in his favor. He was very wealthy. He was a very powerful family. Um, he was a well-trusted military leader in Edward's army. But probably the biggest thing he had going for him was that Edward was his brother-in-law, that Edward was actually married to Harold's uh, sister, okay? So it, it, seemed pretty, uh, it seemed pretty logical. And so um, after the king died, Ed, uh, um, uh, after the king died, Harold calls the rest of the nobles in. And he says, listen, we need to know who's going to be king. Here's the promise he made to me, that when he was getting ready to die, he promised me that I would be the next king. And so the nobles were so convinced of this that the very next day, so the king died one day, the very next day, they crowned um, Harold as the new king of England. And so there are many people in England today that say William had never been king, that Harold, because the deathbed promise overrides the promise of years ago, that Harold should be the rightful ruler of England. And so anybody that lays claim to the king or to the throne of England should be a descendant of Harold, right? Which would be a problem, except Queen Elizabeth can also trace her heritage back to Harold as well, right? I don't know if you know how British families work, but there's all kinds of uh, excitement goes on when you start branching into their family tree. It's a little like West Virginia, except they get glory for it. I don't know how that works, right? So, so she can claim that she is the rightful ruler because she is related to William, but she's also the rightful ruler because she's related to Harold. And for most people in England, that satisfies them. That's good. She's got ruling rights to both of these kingdoms. Except there's one more problem. Because by law in 1066, the crown could not be promised to somebody and it could not be taken by force. It had to go to the next of kin, the next closest blood relative. Right? Where most people think, well, that's all right because Edward didn't have any close blood relatives. He didn't have a son to pass the throne to. So he could promise it to somebody else. Except by law... He had to give it to his next closest kin. Well, his next closest kin was a guy named Edgar who was a teenager living in a different country. And he was his great nephew. All right. So by law, Edgar, who was this teenager, should have became the next king of England. Except most people were a little nervous about a teenager running a country, which probably rightfully so, a teenager running a country may or may not be the best idea. But especially one who's not in the country, he doesn't have any military experience, and he doesn't really have any family that's going to support him in this claim. So despite all that, they think the law is clear that Edgar is the rightful king of England. And so they will argue that the only person who has any reigning authority, any reigning power in England, has to be a rightful descendant of Edgar, that William shouldn't have it because he took it by force. Harold shouldn't have it because he took it by promise. The only rightful heir to the throne of England is Edgar's descendants. Right? Now, the good news is that Queen Elizabeth was also able to put this controversy to rest because she is the 29th descendant, 29th generation descendant of Edgar as well. All right? So she can claim a bloodline of William, she can claim a bloodline of Harold, and she can also claim a bloodline of Edgar as well. And so it is very clear, without a doubt, that the blood that runs through Queen Elizabeth's veins very clear, clearly gives her this power to reign and this authority that no one else can claim. All right? so, and the, the odd thing is 
that it is very clear because she has all this blood running through her that can trace back to this is the promise that was made. So whether you think the crown can be taken by force, she's got it. Whether you think it can be taken by promise, she's got it. Or whether you think it's got to be blood descending, she's got all of it. All right. Now, I don't know how that all works out, but we'll leave that to somebody else for another day, and somebody else can explain that to you. But without a doubt, the blood that runs through her veins gives her this, uh, this authority to be the reigning power of England. And that's exactly, almost exactly, except without all the drama of the family tree, that the writer of Hebrews tells us about Jesus, that the blood that runs through Jesus' vein is what gives him reigning authority, reigning power, which makes him superior to the angels in yet another way. You see, some of you were here a couple weeks ago, and you remember that we started the book of Hebrews, and then we got into chapter 1. And really, the whole book of Hebrews is dealing with how Christ is superior, how he's supreme to everything. Right? And in chapters 1 and 2, the subject really is, how is Jesus superior to the angels? Okay? So in chapter 1, the author really stresses his divinity, that Jesus is God, and therefore he is the creator, he's the maker of all things, and so he is superior to the angels because he is the creator, and they are the creation. Right? So for everybody, that makes logical sense. The maker is more, has more authority, more power, is over the things that he makes. Okay? So for everybody, that's not a problem. For the divinity of Christ to be over the angels, we're fine with that. But what happens when the Creator steps into His creation? What happens when the God of the universe takes on limitations for Himself? What happens when He wraps Himself or He takes on flesh and blood, just like you and I have? Does that make Him somewhat inferior to angels? Because we got to be honest. There are things that angels can do that you and I cannot do. All right? If you read about them in Scripture, they, they, they're, they're massive. They're these warriors. Some of them have uh, very odd descriptions of like multiple heads and wings and all this great stuff. and uh, Just super strength. And, and they can just show up in the midst of nowhere. Which like they can, I don't know if they can walk through walls or they just show up. I don't know how that works. But like they just have a bit like they can teleport wherever they need to. All right? They can go between heaven and earth without missing a beat. Let's be honest, you and I can't do that. So really the question is, when Jesus took on flesh and blood, did he become inferior to the angels because the angels have more power than he does? And that's the subject that the writer of Hebrews takes up in chapters 2, or excuse me, in chapter 2, and he simply says, this is not the case. You need to understand, and it's quite the opposite, the fact that Jesus took on flesh and blood and the fact that he took on humility actually makes him superior to the angels because it allows him to do things that the angels cannot do, are not able to do now, or will never be able to do. And one of the first things it allows him to do is allows him to reclaim this promise of reigning power that humanity had over creation. Right? Now, to fully understand this, we don't need to look at the book of Hebrews. We need to go back all the way to the beginning of the story. Right? And the beginning of the story is Genesis in chapter 1. God is making everything. He's speaking it into existence. So he's made the world. He's made the oceans. He's made the fish. He's made the seas. He's made the animals. And he's getting ready to make human beings in chapter 1, verse 26. And right before he gets ready to make humans, kind of this, this finishing of his creation, in verse 26, he says this. He says, Then God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now get this. There's a reason for this. Right? There's a reason men and women are made different than the rest of creation. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the, the livestock, all of the earth, and the creatures that crawl 
on the earth, right? So God makes humans different than anything else in creation. Human beings are the only thing in all of creation that bear the image of God, right? But with this image comes a great responsibility. There's this power that we have to reign over, to rule over. The, the creation is subjected to us, okay? So we bear this image for the purpose of reigning and ruling over creation, over the, the animals that are over the earth, right? So Hebrew makes it clear, Hebrews makes it clear that this power of reigning and ruling over creation and over animals and over the earth is exclusively given to humans and not to angels, right? So going back to our text that we read this morning, I want you to look with me in verse 5, and you'll see what I mean. In verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, he says, For he, God, has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. Right? So God didn't give reigning authority. He didn't give reigning power to the angels. In fact, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 1, he refers to the angels as being ministering, ministering spirits. I don't know why that word won't come out. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. So understand the angels are servants. They are not rulers. Right? This world is not subjected to them. They are not, they are not in charge charge of this world. They are subject to this world. They are servants of you and I who are going to inherit salvation. They are subject to God. They are servants of God. They have no reigning authority and no reigning power at all. All right. Nowhere in Scripture are they given the authority to rule and reign anything. They simply do what God commands them to do. They are servants. And so now we move on to verse 6 and 7. He makes it clear that this makes Jesus more powerful than the angels. Not because of their strength, but because it gives him an ability that they can't do. So verse 6. But one has somewhere testified... That or some areas test about what is man that you would remember him, or the son of man that you care for him. Then he continues on to the first part of verse seven. You made him lower than the angels for a short time. Right? So remember that God has all this power, but when he took on flesh and blood, he limits himself. He limits the powers that he has. Right? So just like you and I, there are certain things that we cannot do. Right? I wish we could. I wish I could teleport from one place to another. Right? I wish I could be in heaven one moment and then here on earth and then right back in heaven. Right? I wish I could do that, but I can't. Sad news is you can't either. Okay, because we are material, because we are physical, because we have flesh and blood, we are limited in what we are able to do. Right? When Christ was wrapped in humility, when he was wrapped in flesh, he was limited in what he could do. He could not in that moment be omnipresent. Right? Now, there's a whole theology that we can get into about how God still was omnipresent, but Christ in that limitation was not. He was limited to one space at one time. Why? Because he has flesh and blood. And so this very clearly says that for a time being, Jesus was lower than the angels. Not theologically lower than the angels, but simply because he was not able physically to do things that angels could do. He, he gave up his power to teleport. He gave up his power to have all this strength. He gave up all these powers, or he, he limited all these powers that he was used to. But in doing that, he only does it for a limited time because the end result of him taking on flesh and blood is that he reclaims for humanity this reigning power over creation. I want you to notice what it says about him at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. In verse 7, he says, You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor. Right? Which never happens, by the way, 
to an angel. Right? So God subjects the world to him, and he crowns him with glory and honor. In verse 8, And subjecting everything under his feet, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. As it is, we do not see everything subjected to him. Right? So by taking on the flesh and blood, Jesus is able to reclaim this promise and the responsibility of Genesis 1.26. He's able to reclaim this reigning power that even the angels do not have. In fact, what the writer of Hebrews says is there are things that we don't even see, that we don't even know about, that Jesus is reigning and ruling over, that we don't even see those things yet. We will one day... But at this time, in this part of history, we don't see those things. There's a whole spiritual world and a spiritual realm that we don't see, yet Christ has complete ruling and reigning authority over, right? which is never anything that the angels have. So Jesus, for a short time, he, he, ha- he takes on these limitations, but it allows him to gain these reigning power that the angels do not have, cannot have, and will never have. So there's power that allows him to reign that runs through his veins. Right? But the other thing that the flesh and blood allows him to do is it gives him rescuing power. Right? So it gives him reigning power, but it also gives him rescuing power. I read a story this week about a guy named David Lister. And David Lister... Uh, his son was facing some medical issues, and so they were trying to figure out what was going on and, and why this was happening. And so uh, they started asking him all these family history questions. Well, for most of us in this room, that wouldn't be a problem. You would just go talk to your parents, and you would kind of get, hey, what happened to Grandma? What happened to Great Grandma? And you would kind of get this family medical history. But David knew his whole life that he was adopted. Right? So he couldn't go talk to his parents, his mom and dad that raised him, because they didn't know. They didn't know what happened to mom or grandma or grandpa or or anybody, aunts and uncles. They didn't know if this ran through the family. And so David kind of started this trek of tracing down his biological parents, that he really wanted to find out who his biological parents was. One, so he could get this medical history, and two, now he was just curious about them, right? He he knew they existed, so he just wanted to find out about them. So David did research, and he he found his biological mother, right? And he was able to find out who she was and where she lived, and he he drove to the town that she lived in, and then he called her. Before he went to the house, he called her, and he said, well, this is going to be awkward, but I think I'm your son. And she said, well, honey, where are you at? And he said, I'm actually sitting outside of your house. I'm just too afraid to come in. And he said that his mother ran out to meet him in the front yard. And so his mother was so excited and she loved him. And the first thing she started doing was apologizing. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I had to give you up. And and David didn't feel guilty. He didn't feel a problem with that at all. He he had a comfortable life. He understood what the situation was. And so mom invited David into the house and as David went in the house, he, he started talking with his mom a little bit more. And uh, In this visit with his mom, he found out that David was not an only child. That David actually had a younger brother, and his name was Clay. But unfortunately, Clay had his own medical issues that he was dealing with. Clay was 35 years old, and he only had one working kidney. And that kidney has started to fail because of poor health issues. He wasn't eligible to be put on the kidney donation list. And so the only hope that Clay had... for life to continue was that he needed a private donation from a family member. Now, obviously, the first choice would be his parents. The problem was his dad was nowhere around, and his mom was the one who gave him the one kidney that he already had. And so she she didn't have another one to spare. She couldn't give him another kidney. So for Clay, this was it. There was no list that he could go on. There was no other family that, that was eligible to give him this kidney. 
And so as, as uh, uh, David sat and listened to this story and he listened uh, about how da- uh, Clay was in this terrible situation, David said, I knew there was, there was no choice. I had to give him my kidney. And so David offered the kidney to Clay and Clay said, but you, you don't even know me. You, you don't know me, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful, but I couldn't ask you to do that. Like, we don't know each other, and I would feel terrible for you showing up the first time. Hey, here's your mom, here's your brother who's sick, and by the way, he needs your kidney. Give it to him. He said, I'd feel terrible for that. And David said, no, this, is, this only makes sense. Because the only one who can do anything for you is someone who shares a common blood with you. And so David and Clay went and they had their tests done and they went and they had the, trans, the transplant happened without a hitch. And Good Morning America picked up on the story and they followed the story and they went to interview Clay after he was in the hospital and he was recovering. Clay said this, he said, he felt like the luckiest man in the world, not only because of the kidney, but because his brother was back. And his brother came to his rescue when no one else could. And his brother came to his rescue just when he needed it the most. You see, because David was Clay's brother, he was able to rescue him, away, rescue him in a way that nobody else could. And see, that's the second reason that Jesus taking on flesh and blood makes him superior to the angels is because it gives him a rescue and power that the angels cannot claim. In verse 10 is where the author makes this clear. In verse 10 it says, For in, for in bringing many sons to glory... It is entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. You see, this word salvation means to save or to rescue. It really carries with it this idea that somebody is in a desperate situation or a desperate place and they can't do anything about it themselves. Right? Picture whatever you want to think of it as, whatever tragic event that you want to picture in your mind. For me, what kind of comes to mind is somebody who's stuck in a flood. And the water just keeps rising, but they can't do anything about it. They can't stop the water from rising. They can't swim. There's nothing they can do to rescue themselves. And so this is the picture. And so what it's going to take to save that person is somebody from the outside is going to have to come and intervene. Somebody from the outside is going to have to come and do for that person what they cannot do for themselves because that person is in a desperate situation and they can't fix it themselves. And this is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ because this is what Jesus can do. Jesus can take on humanity and step into the situation that you and I can do nothing about. That Jesus can take on humanity and he can step into a situation when you and I were lost, desperate, with no hope of salvation whatsoever. Jesus steps into that situation and he brings this life rescuing opportunity to us and he reaches down and he says, you can't save yourself, but I can. And he pulls us from this desperate, dark situation into this wonderful place of glory. You see, only through the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ is that possible. Did you hear what he said? That the one who would bring them salvation, the source of their salvation, would be perfected through suffering. Think about it for a moment. There is no suffering going on in heaven. In fact, it's one of the main reasons all of us look forward to going to heaven. There is no suffering there. Jesus doesn't suffer in heaven. And if the source of salvation has to come through suffering, then Christ has to take on flesh and blood. It's what allows him to suffer. It's what allows him to experience physical pain in a way that he's never done it before. It's what allows him to come into our desperate situation and pull us from despair and destruction into this place of glory. 
And he's able to do it because like David is to Clay, he is not only our rescuer, but he's our brother. We have this common bond. I want you to notice what it says in verse 11 and verse 12. And he says, talking about Jesus, For the one who sanctifies, which is Jesus, he's the one that cleanses, and those who are sanctified, being you and me, those who are washed, all have one Father. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then in verse 12, he goes on to quote Psalm 22 when he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers, and I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. You see, because he's our brother, because we share a common father, because he took on flesh and blood, he's able to rescue and redeem. He's able to save and deliver. He's able to ransom and free humanity in a way that angels never could because they don't have flesh and blood, because the flesh and blood gives him the rescuing power that's unavailable to anything else in this universe. You see, but the wonder-working power of the blood doesn't just stop with a rescue in this life. It carries us through to the next life, because not only is there rescuing power, but there's resurrection in the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the flesh and blood allows him not only to rescue us from sins, but also break the curse of sin that's held over us. It allows him to break the curse of death. Don't you see verse 14 and, and verse 15? And verse 14 is, is a beautiful verse, and so is verse 15. And I've got to tell you that these two verses um, are, are the verses that we're trying to memorize for the month of October, really verse 14. But these two verses, I'm telling you here in just a moment, I have spoken volumes within the last two weeks. And so I want you to look with me in verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. And then it goes on in verse 15. And it says, And free those who are held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. You see, flesh and blood allow Jesus to enter into the same fate that awaits all of us. It allows him to enter into death and to give himself over to death, death on the cross. And this wonder-working power in the blood of Jesus Christ is unlike anything else because unlike us, when his heart stopped, was not the end for him. Which also means it's not the end for us because we are brothers and heirs and we share this flesh and blood. We share this thing in common. You see, when he breathed his last, it was not the end because what he was doing was he entered death and he entered the grave, but he came out victorious. He defeated death from the inside and something no angel could ever do. No angel has ever defeated death. Regardless of the powers and all that they can do, they have not and cannot defeat death. So for you and I who trust in His sacrifice, we no longer have to fear death. We don't see death as an end. We now see it as a beginning. Death is not an eternal separation. It's a doorway into the eternal life that's been promised to us. It's a doorway into His presence. It's a doorway into His glory forever. It's the resurrection power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, we get to look at death totally different different from the rest of the world. You see, it is the power and the resurrection of His blood that allows us to join with Paul in 1 Corinthians verse 15 and 55 through 57 when he says, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Verse 40 or 57. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I told you this verse in Hebrews has become so powerful over the last couple of weeks because I've got to tell you, in the last two weeks I have talked to at least five families that have directly lost a family member or someone very close to them, a close friend of them. In fact, it was three within the past two days. 
I've got to share with you that one of those families that I talked with who, who had a terrible medical experience herself but also lost her family to this terrible medical situation, I was speaking with her on the phone and she told me very clearly, she said, the only thing that has given her any comfort in the last three weeks was knowing that even though her loved one was gone, it was not the end. Knowing that even though her loved one, she was never going to see him here on earth again. Knowing that there was a day coming that she was going to see him on the other side of the pearly gates. That one day forever and all of eternity, she was going to see her loved one again. That there was never going to be another separation. This was all that there was. This is all the pain, all the tragedy, all the heartache that her loved one is ever going to feel. Because there's coming a day when she's going to see him again. And from that moment on, she will never be separated from her loved one again. You see, for us who believe in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, for us who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have an assurance and we face death totally different than anybody else. Does that mean we're not heartbroken? No. Does that mean we're not going to miss the people that we love? No. It just simply means that we know that's not the end for them. We know that it's not the end for us. It means that we have a victory over death. This wonder-working power of resurrection power in the blood of Jesus Christ is a power that no angel has ever been given. And it belongs to Christ and Christ alone because He took on flesh. Because He became sin for us. Because He alone was able to lay down His life, but He alone was able to take it up again. You see, He alone defeated death from the inside out. There are millions and billions of people in this universe who are trying to defeat death from the outside in. They will spend millions of dollars building billions of hospitals around the world. They will surround themselves by security guards. They will surround themselves with everything they can think of, pour all of their life savings, everything they can to make them safe as possible. And the reality is that death is coming for them one way or the other. It doesn't matter how big your house is, how small your house is, what degree you have, what degree you don't have, how much money you have. None of that matters. Death is coming for everyone. But for us who are believers in this flesh and blood, we can face it with confidence because we know that faith is the victory, that the blood of Jesus Christ has resurrecting power, and we are not defeated by death, yet we worship the one who defeated death from the inside. And so fear of death doesn't hold us back any longer. But there's one final power that the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ has, and it's the reconciling power. And i got to be honest with you that this is what gives him the rescuing and resurrection power. And for me, this is probably one of the most powerful things that his blood can do because this is the power to reconcile and to reconnect us into a right relationship with God, a God that we have fought against, and a God, if we're honest, we have turned our back on over and over again. But I want you to first notice in verse 16 that this reconciliation, it's not offered by the angels, nor is it offered to the angels. In verse 16, he says, For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. You see, when angels sin, and we know that, that some of them have, we know at least a third of them from the other parts of the, bottle of the Bible they did, and they rebelled against God. And for them, there is no reconciliation. For them, there is no forgiveness. There is no offer of salvation. Once an angel rebels and goes against God, he is eternally an enemy of God. There's no hope. There's no return. There's no reconciling that relationship ever. Once it's done, it's done. But for you and me, 
Because we bear the image of God, there is a different story. For you and me, there is a Jesus who reaches out and offers hope. There is a chance of redemption and a chance to turn back and come back to God. But verse 17 makes it clear the only way that happens is through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that word propitiation is not a word we use very often. In fact, it's not even a word the Bible uses very often. It's only used here and one other place in the whole Bible. Right? It's probably a word that you may not have heard outside of church or may not have heard anywhere else because it is a word that, that is kind of exclusive to the Christian faith. And it is meaning that there's a sacrifice that is offered that satisfies divine wrath against sin. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, wrote this. He said, Propitiation happens at the cross when God poured out His wrath against sinners on Jesus, thereby satisfying God's demand for a just punishment of sin. The logic of propitiation makes the good news good. In fact, without propitiation, there is no gospel. You see, Jesus took on flesh and blood, so He was like us in every way. So the only way that He could take on that, or the reason He did that, was so He could be a substitution for us. So He could pay a debt that you and I owed. That He could take on the punishment that we deserved, that we earned and we worked for. And that His flesh and blood, without it, He could not have done that. He couldn't be the substitution. He couldn't take on the punishment. He couldn't take our place. You see, without Him having flesh and blood, He couldn't be pierced for our transgression. He couldn't be struck for our sins. There would be no wounds that would heal us. And so Dr. Moeller is right that without the flesh and blood, there is no good news and there is no gospel. And let me finish our time with this quote from Warren Wearsby. He simply says this, that as you and I review this section of Scripture, you cannot help but be amazed by the grace and wisdom of God. When Jesus Christ became man... He did not become inferior to angels, for in, him, for in his human body he accomplished things that angels could never accomplish. In his flesh and blood is what allowed sinners to become saints, enemies of God to become children of God, and turn faith of death into a victory cry for eternal life. This is the wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what brings us to this table of remembrance this morning. Before we do that, I want to pray with us and for us. Let's pray together.